A couple weeks ago, uh, the elders uh, were over at mine and my wife's house, and we found ourselves uh, discussing movies. I don't know how it came up, uh, but we were just talking about our favorite movies, and yeah, it was a good discussion. There, there was one elder, uh, I will not say who, um, but there was one elder who really enjoys romantic comedies, which is, which is good and great. Uh, they're not my thing, but they are uh, this individual's thing. In a romantic comedy, they, they kind of always follow the same pattern, right? There, there is a guy and a girl, and they kind of like each other, or one person likes the other person, but there's, there's something in the way that is preventing them from being together, right? And the plot of the romantic comedy is the removal of whatever that thing is so that the people can be together. And at the end of the movie... However it ends, it usually ends with the two people getting together. The assumption that is made by the screenwriters is that when the couple gets together, whether they agree on a first date, whether they get married, whatever it is, that because that thing that separated them has been removed, then they live happily ever after. You see that. When you watch movies, you see that when you hear stories, right? There's, there's some kind of conflict, and whenever that conflict is removed, the people live happily ever after. If you're more of an action movie fan, as, as I am, my wife and I watched Apollo 13 the other night. Remember where they, like, everything, they're, like, on the other side of the moon, and things are going wrong, and they're, like, in a tin can, and, like, there's nothing on the other side. It's terrifying to me. But when you, when you watch a movie like that, whenever the action hero does the thing that saves the day, the conflict is removed, and then you assume that, you know, once they land safely on Earth, they live happily ever after. We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy over, over this summer, and this is actually going to be, this is going to be our final message. This is going to close out that series. You expect whenever you read a story like the book of Deuteronomy, that it ends happily ever after. Deuteronomy doesn't have a lot of story to it, but it does have story. It follows the story of the people of Israel after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Right? They go to Mount Sinai, they begin their relationship with God there, God gives them the law. And then instead of going into the land like they were supposed to, they didn't trust God to remove the peoples of the land, so that first generation that came out of the wilderness, or came out of Egypt, wandered in the wilderness for a period of time, for 40 years, until their children grew up. That first generation that saw all of God's wonders as they left Egypt, they didn't trust God to do the same wonders when they were going into the land, so God said, you guys aren't going in, your kids are going to go in. But that's what the book of Numbers is about, is the people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The book of Deuteronomy, which means second law, is a retelling of the law, a retelling of what God has done, a retelling of what God expects from his people as they are sitting on the other side of the Jordan River waiting to cross over it into the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to their descendants. They've been waiting for 40 years. These people have grown up from kids knee-high when they left Egypt. These, some of these people weren't even born yet. There are 40-year-old men and women listening to Moses deliver the book of Deuteronomy who don't remember Egypt at all, but they're sitting there waiting to go in. 
And Deuteronomy, as we talked last week, is a warning. It's a choice to the people of Israel. You can obey God or you can disobey God. It's the same choice that Adam and Eve faced. Do you want to choose blessing or do you want to choose the curse? Do you want to live in the land or do you want to be expelled from the land? And if we didn't know any better, if we weren't aware of, you know, if we haven't gone to church for most of our lives, if we weren't aware of how the rest of the Bible shakes out, you might expect the people to go into the land and live happily ever after. But do they? No, they don't. As the story of the Bible goes on, and I want to spend most of our time this morning talking about the rest of the story. This is more of an epilogue to the book of Deuteronomy than a sermon on the book itself. But as the story of Israel goes on, we see that they are a people who choose, when the choice is placed in front of them, blessing or cursing, they choose cursing. They choose to rebel against God. Deuteronomy presents, as we've kind of talked about through this, sort of uh, two types of circumcision, right? There's the external sign of circumcision, which marks you out as a person who is of Israelite descent, but there's also a circumcision of the heart. And it's symbolic of having your heart changed by God. And throughout Israel's history, we see that the nation as a whole They may have been circumcised on the outside, and I apologize for that image. That's a biblical image, and it's one that I think is worth using. But they may be circumcised on the outside, but their hearts are not changed. The book of Judges, which talks about Israel after they've gone into the land, the key phrase throughout the book of Judges is, there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did that which is right in their own eyes. The book of Judges has story after story after story of the nation of Israel rebelling against God. They didn't remove the foreign nations like they were supposed to. Instead, they, they you know, made covenants with them. They made contracts with them. They made relationship with them. And the foreign nations that they left in the land led them astray. They worshipped other gods. And Judges is a cycle Right, the people fall astray, then God brings in some other nation to sort of have military um, dominion over them, and then they repent, and then God sends a judge. And some of those judges are good guys, but a lot of them really aren't. We know, we know the story of Gideon, right? the guy with uh, Gideon had an army of 1,400 men, and it came down to 300, or however the song goes. I don't, I don't know how the song goes. Gideon had an army of 300 men, and God uses the 300 men to overcome the Midianites. And we tell it in Sunday school, and we tell the story of Gideon and the fleece. We don't tell the story that often about how Gideon makes an idol after Israel has um, you know, their victory over the Midianites. He says, oh, everybody, let's worship this ephah, this priestly garment. We're going to worship this thing and pretend that it's God. We are familiar with the story of Samson, right? Samson was a guy who, he was concerned about women and sex and personal pleasure, and he almost lucks and stumbles his way into being a leader of the nation of Israel, and God uses him even though he's a sinful man. That pattern repeats itself over and over in Israel's history. They are led by sinful men who really don't lead them out of their patterns of wickedness. The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18 gives very specific instructions for what the king is supposed to do. 
The qualifications for a king is not, you know, some kind of technical knowledge about how to lead a country. It's not any of that stuff. The book of Deuteronomy says the king needs to get a copy of the law and spend his days studying the law. So the king can be a person who leads the people in doing what's right and following God and loving God. And when we finally get kings, right, we see King David, not the first king of Israel, not even the second king of Israel, but the first great king of Israel. And you think, okay, this is going to be the guy who's finally going to lead Israel into doing what's right, right? That's what the book of Judges says. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which is right. Maybe once we get a king to, you know, read the law every day and lead the people in righteousness, you know, maybe this is going to be the thing. And David starts out really, really well. Right? He unites all of Israel together for really the first time. He's this great man after God's own heart who trusts God. Right? He's the one who kills Goliath. He has all of these great military victories to consolidate Israel together. And you think, maybe this is the guy who's going to lead them in doing righteousness. But then David rapes Bathsheba. Then David kills her cousin. cousin. Then David kills her husband to cover it up. And after that, David's reign, his rule over Israel, is thrown into turmoil. He's actually exiled from the city of Jerusalem for a period of time while his son takes over and there's a civil war. And you think, okay, maybe this isn't going to be the guy who finally leads Israel into doing what's right. And then David's son Solomon comes on the scene. You say, okay, maybe this is going to be the guy. And Solomon, at first, his story starts out really well. He asks for wisdom, famously, right? God says, you know, what, what, all, what do you want? Anything under the sun. And he says, wisdom. And God says, good choice. You could have asked for you know, wealth or land and prosperity, but you asked for wisdom, and so I'm going to give you the rest of it because you've made a good choice. Solomon leads Israel into economic prosperity, and you start to see this vision of Israel being established in the land. Right? The Queen of Sheba comes up from modern-day Sudan, and she says, I've heard of you know, how great your God is, and that's the way it was supposed to work. People around were supposed to see the nation of Israel in their prosperity. And you start to say, okay, maybe this is going to be the guy who's going to lead us into, or lead Israel into doing what's right. But then Solomon marries a bunch of pagan wives for political purposes. And they turn his heart astray. Solomon starts worshiping other gods and starts leading the nation to do the same. And after David and Solomon, two of Israel's greatest kings, it really doesn't get any better. Without going into every king of Israel, the nation splits. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. And the kings in the north, right, the rebellious line, King Jeroboam sets up two idols in the north of the country and the south of the country. And him and all of his descendants just turn Israel away from God. In the southern kingdom where David's line was still intact and David's dynasty reigned for a couple hundred years, most of the kings did the same. They followed their father, Solomon. There were a few good kings, men like Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah. But the bulk of them turned the hearts of Israel away from God. When Israel was faced with a choice to love God or to reject him, blessing or cursing, life or death, they chose death. And that's not because they were Jewish or anything like that. It's because their hearts weren't 
circumcised. It's because the natural state of humanity is to rebel against God. The book of Ezekiel says the following words. This is Ezekiel 5. Israel was supposed to be a witness to the nations, right? Queen, the queen of Sheba coming in and, and seeing what God had done. But instead, Israel became a negative example to the nations. They were a warning and a horror to all of the nations around them. Because after a couple hundred years of Israel in sin, just like Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden when they chose to rebel against God, Israel got kicked out of the land themselves. 2 Kings chapter 17 goes into detail on this, and I just I want to read a few verses. But it, 2 Kings actually looks back to Deuteronomy, and it compares all of the things that Israel has done, all of the commands that Israel has failed to keep. And because of those commands, Israel would be removed from the land. Let me read these few verses. 2 Kings 17, uh, verses 7 through 13. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places. They were supposed to tear them down, but they built them. They built themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, and they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Israel rebelled. So God removed them from the land. The northern kingdom wound up going into captivity with the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom wound up going into captivity by the nation of Babylon. But they went into exile because they were unfaithful. So the question should be asked, what about God's promises to Abraham? If you don't remember God's promises to Abraham, the story of Genesis is the story, of, or at least the first 11 chapters, is the story of how humanity keeps rebelling against God. Adam and Eve sin, then Cain kills Abel, then humanity gets really, really wicked, and God sends the flood, then there's the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis 12, Abraham comes along, and God promises him. He says, Abraham, I'm going to use you and your family to undo the curse that Adam and Eve brought in the world. You and your family, I'm going to work through you to fix all of this. There's going to be a nation that descends from you, and I'm going to work in and through them to bring blessing to the world. But if that nation chooses to reject God, what becomes of God's promises? It's a good question, right? Does that mean God has to be unfaithful to his promises? No. God's promises are still in effect. If you read the prophets, I know that for those of you who have been studying Isaiah uh, at the Bible study on Thursday afternoons, you see kind of two different types of messages in the book of Isaiah. There's one of judgment, 
right? Repent because the, the wicked day is coming where this nation's going to come and overthrow you. And there's a lot of that. But there's also hope. And you see some of these, you know, right next to each other, judgment and hope. It's typical of most of the prophets. Judgment's coming, but there's hope on the other side of it. God will remain faithful to his promises. There will come a day where God fully and finally undoes what happened with Adam and Eve. There's the sin that they brought in the world. God will remain faithful. He will keep his promises. Even though Israel was unfaithful, God remained and remains faithful. There's no greater way in which God has demonstrated his faithfulness than in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who has come to save us. If I can turn to Romans 2 really quickly. I didn't pull this up beforehand. The book of Romans chapter 2 makes it clear that what really matters as far as God's people goes is not external circumcision, but it's circumcision of the heart. Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, so if a man who is a Gentile keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, or if he who is a Gentile, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That passage may have been a little bit, a little bit thick, a little bit dense, so let me, let me break it down if I can. There are those who are circumcised on the outside, people who are Jewish. There are those who are uncircumcised on the outside, people who are Gentiles. Right? God's relationship in the Old Testament was with the people of God who were Jewish, who were circumcised on the outside. But Paul says, what does it matter if you're circumcised on the outside, if you're Jewish, if you have the law, if you go to the synagogue, but your heart isn't changed? What's the point? You're missing the point. Your outward circumcision doesn't mean anything if your heart isn't circumcised. If you don't trust God, if you don't love God, it doesn't matter that you're Jewish. It doesn't matter that you have the law. It doesn't matter that you go to the temple. What really matters is your heart. For the uncircumcised person, right, for the Gentile, and most of us today are Gentiles. I believe all of us are Gentiles. I would say most of us just because I don't know for sure. But we are on the outside of the people of God. And so we kind of look in and see, oh, God gave them the promises and the prophets and all of that. But if our hearts are circumcised, if we truly love God, then God brings us into his people. When I was a little kid in Sunday school, I learned the song. I don't know if you guys know this, um, but we're going to sing it. anyway. I'm going to sing it. You guys don't have to sing. Um, I expect Wendy to know this. So, right, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons. Wendy's nodding at me, so this is good. Many sons had Father Abraham. What's the next line? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's 
just praise the Lord. And then you do like little dance because they're like little kids who need energy to be let out of them before their parents take them home to eat lunch and whatnot. I am one of them, and so are you. God promised Abraham that he was going to have a people that came from him, and through that people, he was going to change the world. Through that people, God was going to bring blessing on all of the nations. And though Israel was unfaithful, God remained faithful, and he brought the Gentiles into the people of God. So the children of Abraham are not necessarily the ethnic children of Abraham. They're not necessarily the physical descendants, but they're the ones who have the faith of their father, Abraham. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 4, if I can. You know, I should have pulled this up beforehand, but I didn't. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Keep in mind what blessing means, right? Adam and Eve brought cursing. God intended through Abraham and his children to bring blessing on the world, to undo what Adam and Eve was going to do. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And then Paul, because he loves us and doesn't trust us to know the answer to this, gives us the answer. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He then received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, really thick passage. Abraham's true children, to summarize this, Abraham's true children are the ones who have faith. The ones who trust God. The ones whose hearts have been circumcised. Abraham's true children are the church, the ones who through Christ have had their sins forgiven, the ones who through Christ have been made alive by his resurrection. God is using us to fulfill his promises. One more passage, Colossians chapter 2. This is the passage that's in your bulletins. Colossians chapter 2. Verse number eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, but not according to Christ. For in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with an external circumcision? No, with a circumcision made without hands. Praise God for the circumcision made without hands. Men and women united together in one body. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, sin passed on all of humanity. Our hearts need to be circumcised. Our hearts, by nature, are sinful. Our hearts, by nature, are hearts that rebel against God. And this isn't a literal thing, but imagine with me a heart that is full of dead flesh. It's got black edges to it. That's seen better days. A heart that needs to be changed. That's the heart that we have. But praise God, by the death and resurrection of Christ, our hearts can be circumcised. The old flesh can be cut away, and a new, fresh, beating heart that loves God can be put into its place. Not to, get, not to get too gross, um, but just kind of continuing with the metaphor of old and new flesh. Right? When, you, when you fall down and you get a scrape, you, you know, get a little boo-boo on your elbow or whatever it is, you get a scab there after a couple days. If you don't, go see a doctor because that's not good. But you're supposed to get a scab there as your body's healing it. And if you're anything like me, it takes everything within you not to pick at the scab, right? Just because it's there and you're like, mm, you just fiddle with it and you don't do it self-consciously. Wendy's giving me a really disgusted look. Probably appropriately so. I'm not saying this is the nicest thing to talk about from the pulpit. But anyway, when that scab finally falls off, when it's finally time, right? It's been a week or two and the scab falls off. What has been crusty and dead and gross, I know it's gross, but it's the illustration. What has been crusty and dead and gross finally peels away, and there's new pink flesh. You have been finally made whole again. That is what God does to our hearts. Takes what is broken, takes what is dead, takes what is sinful, and changes us. He removes the heart of flesh that we have, the heart that so often goes after sinfulness, and he makes us new again. He forgives our sin because in his death, he takes the wrath of God, and he takes the record of debt that stands against us, right? All of the the things that we owe God because we haven't measured up, and he nails it to the cross. He says, this is done. Your sin is forgiven, and because of my death and resurrection, you are made new, Even though Israel was unfaithful, God remained faithful. And through Jesus Christ, he provides a way through Abraham, through his children, to bring about redemption on that final day. Our hearts can be made new. And we look forward to the day in which all of creation is made new. When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, God cursed the ground. But God is going to bring blessing to this world again. And he's going to use us to do it. As we work in the world, as we witness 
about our Savior to the world as we just do simple things like loving our neighbors as ourselves. We are doing the work to bring about the new creation to this world. And one day, finally and fully, Jesus Christ will come back. He will rule over his people. He will rule over the church. No longer will we struggle with sin. Our hearts will be made completely new. And every tear that's in our eyes will be wiped away. So maybe we can live happily ever after. After all, even if the nation of Israel didn't in the Old Testament, even though we still struggle with sin today, one day we look forward to the day when we will live happily ever after, where God's plan to bless the world will actually come to fruition. And we live in a redeemed and restored world with hearts that have been made new and that can truly love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our might. So I encourage each one of you to trust God. Paul in Romans talks about the faith of our father Abraham. The thing that marks us out is circumcision of the heart, yes, but it's also faith and trust in God, that God will accomplish the promises that he said that he would. Faith that God will redeem us and save us. Everyone in this room is trusting in something. We may be trusting in ourselves to work our way to God. We may be trusting in some kind of substance to numb our hearts. When I say substance, I might mean donuts. I might mean meth. I might mean anything. I don't, anything in there. We might be using a thing to numb our hearts. So I encourage each and every one of you today, trust in God. He is the one who will redeem us. He is the one who will save us. Flock to him. Fall on your knees before the cross because only by Christ's death and resurrection can we be saved. Only by Christ's death and resurrection can our sins be forgiven. Only by Christ's death and resurrection will this world be fixed and blessing finally come to be among us. Happily ever after is coming. So trust Christ today. Will you pray with me?